Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Okay, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome here to Strength to Strength. It's good to see you all again here this morning. Uh, my name is Brian Martin, and I am from State College, uh, Pennsylvania, here. Uh, would be part of the same church as Philip Hess, and it was my turn to uh, moderate this morning, so I get the privilege of, uh, of, of introducing Philip. Uh, so yeah, welcome here, everybody, and welcome, Philip. We're looking forward to this topic on vaccines, e efficacy, and ethics. Um, so Philip uh, is a carpenter by day. Um, he um, employs uh, two brothers from our congregation, so he swings a hammer in the daytime, and he writes books at night. Um, recently, he's written a book on uh, penial substitutionary atonement. So if you're interested in the atonement, Philip is a, somebody who's thought a lot about that. Um, Philip has six children, and the sixth soon to arrive. So Philip, it's, it's good to have you here with us and looking forward to this topic and know that um, this topic has stretched you pretty well, something you've been interested in for years, um, but uh, to present and share, of course, is another whole level of, of, uh, of commitment and uh, vulnerability. So thank you for being willing to come on here this morning and, and talk about this very relevant uh, subject. So to get started here, let's just bow our heads for prayer. <clears throat> let's pray. Father. We come to you in Jesus' name this morning. Thank you so much, Lord, for your mercies that are new again today. You've given us health and strength to, to rise and serve you today. Uh, Father, we ask that you would go with this topic here this morning, that you would guide and direct it and bless it uh, in a special way. Give Philip wisdom, understanding, clear mind, Lord, and, and just uh, take away the fear of man from him. And Father, pray that it could be a... a, a a talk that could be a blessing uh, to each one of us and, and a blessing for for your kingdom, Lord. So just, just guide and direct us in a special way, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Right. Brother Philip, it is all yours. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you all this morning. I'm looking forward to the next hour here and uh, sharing together. So... I am speaking on a topic for which I confess I'm underqualified. I'm not a medical professional. Um, I can't answer your questions about toenail fungus and gallbladder issues. And uh, I'm sure there's many people that would be a lot more qualified to speak on this topic than, than I am, but I was asked to do that and I'm happy to do, to do the best I can. Vaccines is a topic that's um, a current issue right now. People are very interested in this, of course, because of COVID-19 and there's a lot of, of uh, concern about COVID around us. And now we have vaccines that have been introduced. There's a lot of, um, a lot of concern about those too. And so there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of misinformation. It can be very hard to sort through. So as we think about the issues of the day, I want to talk about vaccination, a little bit about its history, um, and we'll just see if we can learn how to think about vaccines in general before we talk about the COVID vaccine in particular for a while this morning. Now, um, 
I know that a number of you are on the phone and can't see the screen. I apologize that I do have a lot of slides to share. You won't be able to see this, but I'll do my best to read what's on the slides or tell you about them, and hopefully uh, you can keep up to speed with what's happening as well. So I'm going to go ahead and share my screen here. Now I'm having the same issue that I had before, Glenn. I'm not sure why it's not showing my presenter view, but yeah. so uh, I, I don't actually need to hide presenter view. And now right click again. And now you get it. Yep, there we go. Okay, vaccines, efficacy and ethics. So here's a quote that I uh, copied from an online source and it starts out, vaccination is based on fear. So what do you think about that quote? Do you agree with that? Now I know that there are, there may be people on this call this morning that, that agree with that. There may be people that are opposed to all vaccines, maybe people opposed to some vaccines. And uh, this is a very controversial topic. Um, so to speak on it and to take any position one way or another is going to be to have some disagreement. Um, I can't keep everybody happy on this, but we'll do the best we can. And uh, when we look at quotes like this, it's always good to know a little bit about the person they're coming from, how what their qualifications are and why they might make such a, a statement. So the quote goes on to say, Vaccination ignores our evolutionary history. We have survived in cohabitation with multitudes of germs. There's a balance between immune enhancement and immune depletion. We can encourage the former by acknowledging the power and competence of our bodies to heal themselves. Okay, so this person is coming from a worldview that says that over the last billion years or so, humans have evolved to um, fit their environment and therefore we're we're best off in just a natural state. If we begin introducing man-made solutions to disease, uh, probably we're going to uh, have problems. So that's a, a different than our Christian worldview that says that we live in a fallen world that has a lot of problems as a result of the curse. And God has given us a mandate to um, have dominion over the earth and work against the problems that are there. The quote goes on to say, those administering vaccines rarely, if ever, provide full information on the vaccines being injected. They exaggerate risks of infection and don't explain that vaccines may be just as risky or worse. So there you go. Um, you're not being, you're being told that diseases are worse than they are um, in an attempt to get you to take vaccines and vaccines are actually just as risky as diseases, according to this quote. So we're going to spring off of that and think a little bit about historical um, health patterns. So I have a quote here from William Wordsworth, a simple child that lightly draws its breath and feels its life in every limb. What should it know of death? Now, death is an enemy at any stage of life. We know that because the Bible tells us so, but there's something especially uh, touching about a child dying because a child is we can just sense in ourselves that a child is supposed to be full of life they have the joy of life in them they're supposed to be growing they're supposed to be learning and a child's death is an especial tragedy so 
let's think about child death. In 1999, 1.4% of US, U.S. deaths were of children five years old and younger. So about 1.4 out of 100 children in 1999 died. I'm sorry, 1.4% of deaths were of children. Now, how does that compare to 1900? Any guesses? I managed to put that up on the screen a little too soon there, but in 1900, 30% of deaths were of children five years old and younger. That's a lot of deaths, almost one third of them. That means that, that almost a third of people in 1900 never made it to six years of age. William Wordsworth, the poet we quoted a bit ago, lost two of his five children to death. So this has changed as a result of health advances. Many infants who once would have died from prematurity, complications of childbirth and congenital anomalies like birth defects now survive. Children who previously would have perished from an array of childhood infections today live healthy and long lives thanks to sanitation improvements, vaccines, and antibiotics. Okay, so vaccines are not the only factor that have increased um, lifespans. There's been many advances in health. We're able to do surgeries we couldn't do in the past. And so all those things have contributed to increased lifespans and many more people making it to adulthood and old age. Certainly vaccination is only a part of that. But vaccination um, and all those health advances have contributed to life expectancy rising from less than 50 years of age in 1900 to more than 76 years of age in 1999. So viruses before vaccines. Smallpox. Smallpox is one of the worst diseases to have ever affected mankind. Smallpox decimated Europe. Now in history, the word decimate means to take one out of 10. And that was literal. 10% of Europeans were killed by smallpox across the centuries. And many other people were not killed but were scarred for life. You can see why this would be as you look at a picture of a smallpox sufferer from 1974. There's a lot of boils there, a lot of scars would be left behind. Makes you wonder if that's what Job had when he was covered with boils from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot. And Europeans died one out of 10 as a result of having some acquired immunity over the generations, but Native Americans didn't have any natural immunity to smallpox. And when smallpox came to the Americas in the 1500s, it wiped out 90% of the Indian population. An estimated 20 million Indians perished from this disease. Smallpox was the first illness to be treated with a vaccine-like therapy. They discovered centuries ago that if you would take pus from a smallpox blister and scratch it into someone's skin, you could give them a case of smallpox, but it would not be as severe as getting it naturally. And eventually they got more sophisticated at that until a man named Edward Jenner discovered that if you would take a related disease called cowpox and infect a person, 
that that would protect them against smallpox. Cowpox was not a serious illness, and so that was um, very preferable. It's actually where we get the word vaccination because the Latin word for cow is vaca. So vaccination literally means in cowling. Rabies. So rabies is still one of mankind's most dreaded diseases, although it's not common around us. Um, when someone gets it, nearly death rates are near 100%. It's rare in the U.S. because of vaccination, particularly vaccination of animals. And it's also rare because of our lifestyles. Uh, we don't have, many of us don't have much contact with wildlife. But worldwide, it's still a very serious problem and about 56,000 people die of rabies every year. And most of those are from bites of rabid dogs. Let's get that video. Polio. So in 1908, an epidemic in New York killed 2,400 people, mostly children, and left thousands more with a lifelong disability. In the 1950s, summer outbreaks in the U.S. caused tens of thousands of cases, leaving hundreds paralyzed or dead. Second only to the atomic bomb, polio is the thing that Americans feared the most. So there's a, a polio victim. He's got a paralyzed limb there, as you can see in the picture. In 1988, worldwide, there was 350,000 cases of polio. And vaccination campaigns have been aggressive and have mostly eliminated polio, except in Afghanistan and Pakistan, where there are uh, some people who are still resistant to getting immunized because of their fears about that. So in 2018, Number of polio cases worldwide, which was centered in those countries, were 137. So that's how polio has been reduced. Next up, we have measles. Before vaccination, measles took an the lives of an estimated 2.4 million children every year. In 2018, worldwide, there was that was down to 140,000 cases. And measles in the U.S. is quite uncommon. It's not here naturally at all. Sometimes it's imported in. Um, and although with modern healthcare, uh, we wouldn't lose as many people to measles because of ability to support them better in, during hospital care, it's estimated that if there were no measles vaccinations, there would still be about a million children dying every year. Uh, measles causes the death on averaged of one to three out of 1,000 children who are affected with it. Another child will have permanent brain damage. Sometimes it will cause permanent healing, hearing loss. So there's a child with measles. Now, I don't know if all cases look this severe. Um, probably they don't, but um, you can see it's, it's uh, a significant illness. So mumps. Mumps causes painful swelling of the parotid glands. It often carries complications of sterility, mastitis, pancreatitis, encephalitis, commonly causes deafness. 
Uh, it kills about 1.6 to 3.8 people out of 10,000. Tetanus. Tetanus is also called lockjaw. It's a bacterial infection um, that causes muscle spasms. And the most common type of spasms begin in the jaw and then progress to the rest of the body. Each spasm lasts a few minutes. Spasms occur frequently for three to four weeks. Some spasms may be severe enough to fracture bones. Other symptoms of tetanus may include fever, sweating, headache, trouble swallowing, high blood pressure, and fast heart rate. Recovery may take months. About 10% of cases prove fatal. There's about 209,000 cases yearly worldwide and about 30 every year in the US. Here's an 1809 painting of a tetanus muscle spasm. So this has been around for a long time. Okay, a few other illnesses now uncommon. We have rubella. Rubella is a pretty mild illness, but when it affects a pregnant mother in the first six months of her pregnancy, the baby, the baby is usually affected and it causes something called congenital rubella syndrome, which uh, causes deafness, eye abnormalities, heart problems, brain damage, and so forth, many other complications for an infant who is uh, in the womb at the time the mother gets the illness. Diphtheria um, is a virus, that, actually a bacteria that causes many possible complications, about 5 to 10% risk of death. Whooping cough, also called pertussis. Um, coughing can last 10 weeks or longer. About 1 in 200 children under the age of 1 die. So these are all illnesses that are not common around us because of vaccination. They can be treated by vaccines. But a lot of people have objections to vaccines. And let's take a look at why that is. Okay, so reason number one is vaccine injuries. You can, you can be injured by vaccines. You can get shoulder injuries. You can have severe allergic reaction called anaphylactic shock. Uh, fainting happens. Brachial neuritis, Guillain-Barre syndrome, encephalitis, thrombocytopenic purpura. So those are all things that happen to people occasionally who are vaccinated. And there's a program called the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program that pays out money to people who are injured by vaccination. And it records one compensation per million vaccine doses. So this does happen. Now, uh, the Merck product insert for uh, the MMRV ProQuad vaccine has this list of possible complications. And I won't read them all, but um, the vaccine for measles can cause measles, can cause aseptic meningitis, can cause agitation, Guillain-Barre syndrome, dizziness. I'm just going through a couple here. Um, and there at the very bottom, it can cause death. So there's quite a list of complications from the measles, mumps, uh, rubella, chickenpox vaccine that are possible. Now, what was that quote that we heard back at the beginning? Those administering vaccines rarely, if ever, provide full information on the vaccines being injected. Okay, well, that list provided by the drug company Merck seemed to be fairly comprehensive to me, um, seemed like pretty full information. 
Now, it is true that when the doctor injects a child with a measles vaccine, he doesn't read that list of possible side effects, typically. And I hardly blame him for that. When, when my wife goes out the door to town, I don't usually tell her, now you know that you could probably die in a car crash on the way to town. There's a, there's a chance that she could, but it's not something that I mentioned due to the one in 10,000 chance or one in 100,000 chance that may be there. However, we, we do live in a world that is full of risks. In fact, uh, none of us get out of this alive and the risks of being in this world are so great that by the age of 122, the mortality rate is 100%. A little bit more about uh, vaccinations. As of May 31, 2019, there have been more than 94,972 reports of measles vaccine reactions, hospitalizations, injuries, deaths following measles vaccinations made to the Federal Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, including 468 related deaths, 7,127 hospitalizations, 1,820 related disabilities. However, the numbers of vaccine-related injuries and deaths reported to VAERS may not reflect the true number of serious health problems that occur after MMR vaccination. Okay, so there you go. It is, there is a risk with this vaccine, and this is just an example of one vaccine. Um, however, compared to the estimated 2.4 million deaths per year that occurred before measles vaccination uh, begins to make this look relatively safe. Suddenly 468 deaths don't seem so bad. In 1981, a report of the National Childhood Encephalopathy Study was published in Britain that concluded the risk of a serious neurological disorder within 14 days after measles vaccine in previously normal children, irrespective of eventual clinical outcome, is one in 87,000 immunizations. So there's a, a hard number on it to give you a sense of how dangerous that is. Serious neurological disorder, one in 87,000. In 1991, there was an outbreak of measles in Philadelphia that was centered at the Faith Tabernacle Congregation, a faith healing church that actively discouraged parishioners from vaccinating their children. Over 1,400 people were infected with measles and nine children died. So modern times, I'm going to guess that of 1,400 people, so a good chance that half of those were children. So you could estimate maybe nine children out of 700 or a little over 1% 1, 1 rate of death there. So that's just a comparison. Um, vaccinations are dangerous, so is measles. So two points should be noted here. No one's hiding the fact that vaccines cause injuries. Why are they still giving vaccines? And the answer is because mathematicians can easily calculate that vaccines cause far fewer known problems than the illnesses they pre prevent. Now, another point that I'd like to note is that the industry has produced flawed vaccines that created unacceptable levels of harm. Vaccines have been discontinued, the SOC polio vaccine, the HPV 77 rubella vaccine, and others. So to say that the industry is ignoring or hiding the harmful consequences 
simply because they want to make money or for some other reason, doesn't seem to be borne up by the evidence. We do live in a society that is somewhat self-correcting because of our free press and doctors themselves don't want to vaccinate their children with with uh, dangerous vaccines. And so there is a tendency for uh, exposure of problems. Now, it's also true that there's unknown risks of vaccination. Um, we live in a time when autoimmune disorders are increasing, allergies are increasing. Um, there's other disorders that are increasing and diseases that are on the rise in the modern world. So could these be caused by vaccines? Well, it's possible, but there are many things in the modern world that our ancestors didn't contact. For example, volatile organic compounds in the paint on your wall, PCBs in your shower curtains, there's pesticides in your cereal, trace amounts, there's antibiotics in your supermarket meat. So while vaccines could cause some of the modern maladies that are increasing, I think it'd be premature to blame them all on vaccines until this could be proven. So vaccines clearly cause injuries. This is not debated. What are we debating? Why are so many people convinced we shouldn't get vaccines? Well, I think the answer is because vaccine preventable diseases are now rare. And we tend to favor cures over prevention. When you have a, when you have a problem, then you begin thinking about a cure. Before you have the problem, it's hard to be proactive. So <clears throat> I'm sorry I have to put this so bluntly, but I think that if we should be aware that if we forego vaccinations because of the relatively risk of vaccine injury, in the end, we will put people in the general population at far greater risk of injury from the diseases. And for those who aren't getting vaccinations, this is really only working well because the vast majority around us have gotten vaccinated. And so the pool of unvaccinated people is small enough that outbreaks of these diseases are quite uncommon. But measles, mumps, uh, all these diseases still exist in the world. And when enough people are, are not vaccinated, they'll come back as they did before. So you could make an argument that getting vaccinations, even if you're not concerned about a disease, could be about loving your neighbor as yourself. Again, vaccinations carry a risk. But so does life. Your lifetime odds of dying in a vehicle accident in 2015 were 1 in 77. That's greater than 1%. How many people do you know that do not ride in vehicles because of the risk of death throughout their lifetime? A lot of life is about risk management. We have to, we have to accept some level of risk. In 2019, 4.5 million Americans were injured in some way in vehicle crashes. That's greater than 1% per year. Did you refuse to get in a vehicle because of those odds? So 
Let me just read something from Dr. John Waldron in his writing, Vaccines and Pyrrhic Victories. Many people have the perception that vaccines don't work. Rates of childhood illnesses fell due to better care, drinking, drinking water, and better health care. We have antibiotics and even a few antiviral agents. As I read the posts about vaccines, it is clear to me that there is a large group of people who is more afraid of getting a vaccine than getting the diseases they're designed to prevent. This says that vaccines have worked. We don't see people in iron lungs anymore from polio. We don't have members of our community dying from lockjaw. We haven't seen children with measles-related encephalitis. This is not because we have treatment for these infections. We don't. We just have shots that are remarkably effective at preventing them from happening. At the same time, we still don't have great treatments for these illnesses. A six-year-old boy last year spent 57 days in the hospital after getting tetanus, with treatment costing over $800,000. Perhaps the shots would have been better. He goes on to say in a section that I'm not going to read that not only is it there a risk of death from various illnesses, but many people are simply maimed for life. Hearing loss, vision loss, scarring. Uh, there's all kinds of all kinds of uh, lifelong impairments that can happen with diseases that we commonly vaccinate against. And so I do think that the reason we have a large pool of anti-vaccination folks, and I'm not trying to, to um, put anybody down or criticize anyone here, really is because these, these diseases have become so rare that we don't worry very much about them. But if several percent of people around you, say five to 10% of children were dying as a result of vaccine preventable diseases, I think most of us would change our minds about the safety of vaccines compared to getting the illnesses. A few other objections that are given to vaccines. Are there people who are profiting financially from vaccines? Well, certainly there, there are. And that can be a driving force in the industry. Although it's true that vaccines don't make much money compared to other therapies. Um, it would actually, the medical profession would make a lot more money off of someone spending 57 days in the hospital over tetanus than giving them a shot. Are there people who would like to develop new vaccines and have you buy them for their financial gain? Well, probably. And it is possible that Vaccines that have been developed or are being developed may be unnecessary and are financially motivated. We can take a look at that. Are there people who would like to ignore or minimize information about risks because they don't want their vaccine threatened? Well, I think that's human nature, so that's probably the case. At the end of the day, we have to be, we have to do risk assessment and make good judgments on the basis of that. Can the medical profession miss large and important pieces of information? Could it be that there's serious consequences of vaccination that, we, that aren't yet known or aren't clearly understood? Now, that's possible. Could it be slanted toward therapies that make money rather than ones that don't? It's, that's also possible. So these are all possible objections. Are all the recommended vaccines a good idea? Well, um, once again, I think we need to do risk assessment here. For myself, the chickenpox illness causes one death per 60,000 cases. To me, that's not a very great risk, and I wouldn't vaccinate for a disease like that.
there's other vaccines that uh, are given that if you live a, a moral lifestyle, you're not likely to have the illness being vaccinated against. I think you could safely skip any of those and live a moral lifestyle instead. So I wish the story could end there. I wish we could just assess vaccines for their um, efficacy and do risk analysis. But unfortunately, we have some ethical concerns with vaccines also. And that's what I wanna talk about now. Vaccines and ethical concerns, the abortion connection. Okay, so the most significant ethical concern with vaccines is the fact that many of them are grown in tissue taken from aborted babies. And this is becoming common knowledge. Probably many of you are aware of this. And the question that we're gonna consider for a bit now is, is this an ethical problem? Is this a problem that is significant enough that it would cause us to forego vaccinations? You know, there's many things in life that could be beneficial to us in a physical way, but we avoid it, avoid them because of moral concerns. For example, uh, there could be times when killing a person is advantageous to my health, but we don't do that because there are are more important things than being healthy sometimes, and that's doing the right thing. So there's a number of reasons that have been given by Christians like, like us to take vaccines grown in fetal tissue. Even though we all agree that abortion is evil and experimenting with bodies of aborted babies uh, is evil, or uh, linking abortion and medical research is evil, uh, we still have to make a decision about certain vaccines that are grown in fetal tissue and, and not all vaccines are. But here's some reasons that are given. It was just a couple of babies, okay? Uh, it happened a long time ago. No more abortions are necessary to sustain vaccine production. It's no different from taking a donor organ from someone who was murdered. So let's think about these, these considerations. Was it just a couple of babies? In other words, um, it's been a long time ago and this isn't going to happen again. And it's not as if many babies are needed for the scientific research that was done. Well, the story starts back in the 1960s. There was a man named Leonard Hayflick and he was experimenting with growing cells in lab culture. He wanted a virus-free source of cells for his experiments. So therefore he decided to harvest cells from aborted fetuses. The first 25 babies that he harvested cells from came from the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Abortion, however, was illegal in the US mm -hmm. at that time, although there was ambiguities in the law and that's, uh, there was basically um, exceptions made and not talked about too much. But when he decided that he was going to use fetal cells as a growth medium for vaccines, he knew that he would need more than a fetus. He would need a family history and a clean bill of health because he wanted to assure drug companies and vaccine makers that his cells were healthy when it came time to sell them. So he needed to go somewhere where abortion was legal 
and he didn't have to do this quite so much in the dark. So he turned to a colleague in Sweden named Svingard, and Svingard was happy to help him out. Svingard was part of the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. And here's the, the methods that they used in their abortions. This is by uh, someone named B. Nathanson. He says, now at 21 weeks, what they were doing, or at 18 weeks or 16 weeks, was what are called prostaglandin abortions. They would inject a substance into the womb. The woman would then go into many labor and pass this baby. 50% of the time, the baby would be born alive. But that didn't stop them. They would just simply open up the abdomen of the baby with no anesthesia and take out the liver and the kidneys. Now, here's the story of one of the babies that was sent to Leonard Hayflick from the Karolinska Institute. And I'll just read this to you. On this particular morning, April 24, 1961, Herr Strom climbed the metal stairs that ran up the outside of the building, the second floor, to learn that a fetus would be arriving and that she needed to prepare its lungs for shipment to the United States. When she had first worked for Guard almost a decade earlier, he had been trying to make polio vaccine with human cells. Then Herr Strom had worked with plenty of human fetuses, even learning how to drain amniotic fluid that was used in cell nurturing medium from the intact pregnant uteruses of cows that arrived regularly from the Stockholm slaughterhouse. But once Sweden moved to using monkey cells to develop the vaccine, that work with human fetuses had gone away. Until lately, when Gard had begun asking her to prepare tissue for shipment to an American institute in Philadelphia. Later, after she donned a white gown and a car had delivered a tiny bundle wrapped in green surgical cloth, Herstrom headed for one of the sterile rooms in the middle of the floor. She washed her hands in disinfectant at the sink under the window, laid out her instruments and sat down at the shiny linoleum table that was the lone piece of furniture in the room. She unwrapped the bundle. It really was incredibly beautiful, this little fetus with everything already in place. With this task, she was being given a privileged glance into the creation of life. It helped to remember this as she picked up a scalpel. And it helped that she came from a family of physicians. You got used to it. You turned the tragedy around. You said to yourself that at least in this case, something life-giving might emerge from death. By the way, th these sentiments came from an interview with her by the author of a book called The Vaccine Race by Meredith Wadman. What shape that particular good might take in this instance, Herstrom didn't know. But if Prof Professor Gard said that scientists in Philadelphia needed fetal lungs, her job was to make sure they got them. At home that night, Herstrom made a dinner of sliced reindeer meat and repaired her winter gloves. Before turning in at 9.30 p.m., she wrote in her diary, work, 8.30 to 5 p.m., sent tissue to USA. Stressful. Now, uh, Leonard Hayflick was using uh, tissue from a number of babies as he was doing his experiments. He became famous for the cells of another baby. And from this baby, he, he grew cells in um, test tubes. And the cell line has become known as WI38. It's used in several vaccines today. It's, it's used to grow several vaccines, I should say. Um, just a little bit about the event of the abortion of this little child. The day after Aaron Holm examined her, Mrs. X was wheeled into an operating room where Aaron Holm performed what was called a minor cesarean section. She cut through Mrs. X's abdominal wall, carefully dissected the bladder free, 
from where it lay high on the uterus and cut through the wall of the uterus. She removed the fetus and placenta, being careful not to leave any tissue behind. The cavern was clean. Suture of the uterus in stages, Aaron Holm wrote in the operative report. The fetus she noted, she noted was 20 centimeters long and female. That fetus was wrapped in sterile green cloth, handed to an aide and taken to a car for transport to the virology department of the Karolinska Institute. Her, that little girl's lungs became the source of the cells that have become known as WI38. They have been grown and multiplied exponentially, used widely in research and are still being used in the manufacture of vaccines for adenovirus, chickenpox, shingles, and rubella. And the baby's mother, Meredith Wadman writes, Mrs. X was living in Sweden in 2013. After sending two unanswered letters, I tried to reach her during a research trip to Sweden that year. In a brief conversation with my Swedish research assistant and translator, Mrs. X said she had no interest in being interviewed. She also said, they were doing this without my knowledge. That cannot be allowed today. Soon after this conversation, I wrote to Mrs. X and my assistant translated and printed the letter. I mailed it. In it, I assured her I would never make her name public or contact her again. So was it just a couple babies? Research WI-38 took at least 28 babies until Hayflick was able to perfect his methods and create that cell line. Researchers went on to make more cell lines. WI-35, I'm sorry, MRC-5 was developed in 1966 from cells taken from a 14-week aborted male fetus. PER-C6 was specifically created for vaccine production. It's a cell line created from the retina of an 18-week-old aborted fetus. HEC-293 is another cell line. It's used in treating cystic fibrosis, hemophilia, heart problems, and it's being used in the development of the Ebola vaccine. So are no more abortions necessary? Then why was IMR90 developed from the lung tissue of a 16-week-old female fetus? It was intentionally developed to mimic WI38 as closely as possible so it can be used as a replacement for WI38. Now taken together, these cell lines represent hundreds of abortions. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Walvax2. In 2015, Chinese researchers developed the cell line Walvax2, specifically to be used in manufacturing viral vaccines. Let me ask you, would they have done this if the church, if Christian people had uniformly refused vaccines cultured in fetal tissue for the past 50 years? I think the answer is no. If people were commonly refusing vaccines because of their connections and origins, I think that vaccine manufacturers would have figured out another way by this time. In fact, no babies are required to make vaccines. Um, all vaccines can be grown in other cells than, than the human. For example, in the United States, rubella is grown in WI38 cells, but in Japan, it's grown in rabbit cells. There is no need to use aborted fetuses for this work. So nine babies were intentionally aborted to develop Walvax 2. It was eventually a three-month gestation girl whose lung tissue was used for the final product. Walvax 2 researchers used the water bag abortion method in order to ensure the babies were born alive and the tissues were fresh. 
This method is illegal in the United States, but China has no law preventing its use. The water bag method entails filling the mother, mother's uterus with saline water and floating the baby out of the mother's body where he or she can then be immediately dissected alive. The researchers titled their paper, Characteristics and Viral Propagation Properties of a New Human Diploid Cell Line, Wallvax 2, and its suitability as a candidate cell substrate for vaccine production. I'm just gonna read to you a little bit about what is required to get a fresh fetus um, for this kind of research. Um, and I'm a little low on time here, so I'm going to just read a few parts of it. Um, tissue procurement companies in the US are intentional about choosing babies ahead of time because they need to immediately dissect the baby and freeze his or her organs and tissues for shipping. When they use heart tissue, in fact, they need a still beating heart and they need to arrest it by an injection as it is beating. And it can't wait till it stops by itself. After investigating and conducting interviews, the 2016 House of Representatives report noted, the middleman, middleman company often embeds a tissue technician in a clinic on the days that abortions are performed. The procurement company pays the clinic on a per tissue basis, the number of saleable body parts, in many ways depends on the methodology of the doctor performing the abortion. The murder and live dissection of some babies without even the help of a pain reliever was documented as far back in the 1960s in Sweden in the babies used for WI-38 and RA-273 research and development. It is evidenced again in a more recent story about a set of twins recounted by a former employee of a U.S. middleman company who told of seeing babies wounded but alive after the abortion procedures. And in one case, a set of twins still moving on the table when clinicians perform, when, when clinicians from the Anatomic Gift Foundation began dissecting the children to harvest their organs. The children, he said, were cuddling each other and gasping for breath when medics moved in for the kill. So would your use of vaccines cultured in fetal tissue contribute to ongoing research and dissection of fetal tissue? Would it continue to continuing to harden the public conscience against abortion? Could your use of vaccines grown in fetal tissue be used to justify abortion and fetal tissue research? I think that's really the big question here. Um, if, if my actions in taking vaccines further this kind of work and perpetuate it, then I bear some responsibility. Um, in 2017, President Donald Trump was limiting federal funding, stopping it for this kind of research. And the American, the Federation of American Societies for Experimental Biology wrote this letter to Congress. It said, fetal tissue remains a critical resource to further researchers understanding of how human tissues develop and are affected by disease. Critical scientific advances such as the development of vaccines against polio, rubella, measles, chickenpox, adenovirus, and rabies depend on research using fetal tissue. I would take issue with that, but don't have time to explain that, uh, but except to say that all these vaccines can be grown other places. Just read a, the underlying portion of this. Uh, the author is basically saying that people who take vaccines should not be trying to stop fetal tissue research. The underlying part, he says, yet they have overwhelmingly partaken 
of the vaccines and treatments derived from fetal tissue research and give no indication that they will forswear further benefits. Fairness and reciprocity alone would suggest that they have a duty to support the work or at least not to thwart it. That's from the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, in Science Magazine, volume 257, Leonard Hayflick, the creator of WI38 wrote, when he, President Bush, recently vetoed the bill that would have sanctioned the use of human fetal tissue in transplantation and research, President Bush might well have pondered this. It is quite likely that, like tens of millions of other Americans, he has received vaccinations produced in human fetal cells. Throughout the Reagan and Bush administration, the government has funded the distribution of WI-38 cells for profit, a use of surgically aborted human fetal tissue that they publicly trumpet to be so abhorrent. So we would give uh, blood or a kidney to somebody that would, I think all of us would think that's okay to do. And we might even accept a kidney from a murdered person, but we would stop short if we knew that taking such a kidney would be used to justify murder. I think it's clear that using fetal tissue will justify ongoing experimentation, possibly abortion, and stem cell research and so forth. Now, Stanley Plotkin is one of the men who was instrumental in developing the rubella vaccine back in the 1960s or 70s, I forget exactly when. And in 2018, um, the court ordered a deposition for him to give expert testimony. And I want you to watch what he shares in this video about his work developing the rubella vaccine. He's being questioned by an attorney named Aaron Siri. I'm gonna ask that question again. In your work related to vaccines, how many vac fetuses were involved in that work? There were only two fetuses involved in making vaccines uh, when um, uh, uh, fetal uh, strains, uh, fibroblast strains, were first developed. I was involved in that uh, work trying to characterize those cells, but they were not used to make vaccines. Wasn't the purpose of this study to help develop a human cell line or to support the use of human cell lines in the creation of vaccines? The idea was to study the uh, cell strains from fetuses to determine whether or not they could be used to make vaccines. So this was related to your work? Well, yes, in, in, a, in a sense, to yes. vaccines, correct? Yes. It was preparatory. Okay. So this study involved 74 fetuses, correct? Well, I don't remember exactly how many. Turn to page 12 of the study. No, 76. 76. Mm -hmm. And uh, these fetuses uh, were th all three months or older when aborted, correct? Yes. Okay. And these were all normally developed fetuses, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, these included fetuses that were aborted for social and psychiatric reasons, correct? Correct. Um, what organs did you harvest from these fetuses? Well, I didn't personally harvest any, but uh, a, a whole range of uh, tissues were harvested um, by uh, co-workers. Okay. 
And these pieces were then cut up into little pieces, right? Yes. And they were cultured? Yes. Okay. Um, some of the pieces of the fetuses were pituitary gland that were that were chopped up into pieces to mm -hmm. okay included the lung of the fetuses yes okay included the skin yes kidney yes spleen yes heart yes and, and tongue <laughs> uh, yes. I don't recall but the, probably yes um, so I, I just want to make sure I understand. In, in, in your entire career, and this was just one study, so I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you again. In your entire career, how many fetuses have you worked with? Um, well, I don't remember the exact number, but uh, quite a few when we were studying them uh, originally before we decided to use them to make vaccines. Have any sense? I mean, this one study had 76. How many other studies did you have that you used aborted fetuses for? Oh, I, I don't remember how many. You're you're aware? Are you aware that the one of the uh, objections to vaccination by the plaintiff in this case is the inclusion of aborted fetal tissue in the development of vaccines and the fact that it's actually part of the ingredients of vaccines? Yeah, I'm aware of those objections. The Catholic Church has actually issued a document on that which says that individuals who need the vaccine should receive the vaccines regardless of the fact and that uh, that uh, I think it implies that I am the individual who will go to hell because of the use of aborted tissues which you, I am glad do you know to do okay Okay. said, I live in the managerial age in a world of admin. The greatest evil n is not now done in the sordid dens of crime that Dickens loved to paint. It is not done even in concentration camps and labor camps. In those, we see its final result, but it is conceived and ordered, moved, seconded, carried, and minuted in clean, carpeted, warmed, and well-lighted offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth, shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voices. Hence, naturally enough, my symbol for hell is something like the bureaucracy of a police state or the office of a thoroughly nasty business concern. But there is hope, due at least in part to the voices that have been raised in protest, Manufacture, vaccine manufacturers are less likely to grow future vaccines in human diploid cells. For example, Sanofi Pasteur just changed an ingredient in their Penticel vaccine, changing it from an unethical to an ethical one. So I don't think this is the time to give up on this and accept that this is just the way it's going to be. Okay, COVID-19. So now we're uh, on to the hot topic that um, we're all interested in. And I see that my time has been getting away from me here. Um, I think that probably most of you know as much about COVID-19 as I do. Um, it's a lot still unknown about COVID-19. Final mortality rates are still to be determined. 
Um, I think it'll probably land below 1% mortality overall. Certainly, it's much less than 1% for people who are under the age of 70. Is it worth taking a COVID-19 vaccine? Are COVID-19 vaccines safe? Are they ethically produced? Important questions as we think about this topic. Well, here's the vaccine adverse event reporting, COVID reports through February 5. Um, you can see there's been a reported 653 deaths. Um, there's been some hospitalizations, various complications of the vaccine. So uh, certainly the vaccine is not safe. It's not perfectly safe. Now, I'm sure that this reflects millions of vaccinations. I'm not sure how many vaccinations have been given by February 5, but um, if you, if COVID carries a 1% chance of mortality, that's 10,000 deaths out of 1 million. Um, so what this is showing here is uh, quite a bit less than that. So according to this, the vaccine would be a lot safer than the illness. Um, however, uh, for most of us, the risk of COVID death is not very great. And so we, ha we have to make a choice about what kind of risks we will take. What is our risk tolerance? I think that um, we as Anabaptist people, which many of us are, uh, we are more risk tolerant than much of general society. And so part of why we look at COVID differently than many people around us is because of this risk tolerance. Now, part of this is, is religious and cultural. As Anabaptists, we would rather have our social and religious lives keep moving forward at some level of risk than uh, stop everything over a small chance of serious illness or death. But a lot of Americans don't feel that way. And so um, when the question comes up as to how serious COVID is, um, the question is not simply about that, how serious it is, but what is your risk tolerance? Um, so there's a, a lot of um, concerns about the vaccine right now. There's a lot of things being said about its danger. There's a lot of contrary things being said about its safety. And where I'm at on this is kind of a wait and see approach. Um, I'm not a specialist. I don't feel like I have enough knowledge to assess this, but I'm also, I also consider the risks of COVID relatively low and um, I'm not so worried about waiting for a while on the vaccine. However, the more important question for me about vaccines is, are they ethically produced? So this is a list from the Charlotte Lozier Institute assessing this. And um, of course the two vaccines that are being commonly given right now are at the top, Pfizer and Moderna. They have given uh, a rating of, of uh, ethical, that's what the green represents there on this list, to the development and production of the vaccine. It's not being grown in fetal tissues However, lab te tests were done on fetal tissues. So some of this is gonna come down to how the individual feels about this. Now, I've read contrary opinions that in fact, fetal tissue 
was used in the development for both of these vaccines. And I think those, those contrary reports are actually, uh, I would agree with them more than this list here. But in any case, it's, it's probably not quite the same in my mind as um, quite the same as actually growing the vaccine ongoing in fetal cells and using, using them on an ongoing basis. However, everybody's going to have to pray about this, think about it, and make their own decision. Um, so on this list, there's no vaccines that are untainted from connection to fetal tissue research, uh, except possibly the couple that have the question mark there. So uh, here's another, another organization called Children of God for Life, and they have made a list of all the vaccines and therapies. Uh, it's five pages long. I'm just gonna scroll through it here. And the ones that they have highlighted in yellow, they consider ethical. The ones that have red print, they consider unethical. So you can see there's quite a bit of variation. Um, you cannot be mandated to receive a vaccine as long as it's being given under emergency use authorization. So that's, these vaccines are still in trials technically, uh, but they've been authorized for emergency use. Because of that, there cannot be a law passed that you have to receive one until those trials are finished, which will be sometime. Uh, a COVID-19 vaccine that does not use aborted fetal cell lines in research or production is not expected to be available until the end of 2021 at the earliest. So for some of us who are comfortable with our with our risk, uh, we're happy to wait that long on, on, an ex, on a vaccine that's fully ethical. But again, I, I will have to let um, you all make those decisions. Um, so finally, I'm just gonna go through a few COVID-19 conspiracy ideas. COVID-19 myths and theories. Was COVID-19 created in a lab and malevolently released? Well, I don't think the evidence is good for that. I think it's certainly possible. Um, if it was released from a lab, either purposefully or accidentally, I'm sure the Chinese government would have an interest in hiding that fact. So I'm not sure that any of us are really gonna be able to know the final story on that, maybe ever. Uh, but in any case, it's quite clear to me just to observe that the Chinese government did not do this on purpose. Um, they seem to be very interested in stamping it out. And further, uh, if, if someone made this vaccine to harm people, they didn't do a very good job. You would think that if someone was trying to make a harmful vaccine, they would have tried harder to make it a bit more lethal. A lot more could be said about this, but uh, I think just to assess how this has unfolded wouldn't lead, lead one to thinking this was some sort of plot. Are some people using COVID-19 to get wealthy? Well, absolutely. It's human nature to see an opportunity and rush to fill it. I think some people, maybe Bill Gates, are smart enough to know it's a matter of time until a pandemic hits. Might as well have a system in place to get wealthy off of it. Um, are some governments using COVID-19 to seize control? Of course, governments always have a tendency to do this when they see an opportunity. 
The Roman Republic gave rise to the Roman Emperor. The Weimar Republic gave way to the Third Reich. American democracy is gradually giving way to American socialism. That's how it goes. People are always looking to seize power and there's always circumstances popping up to make it possible. But I think the only person that could have had a plan for COVID-19 is God. Is the danger of COVID-19 exaggerated? Uh, possibly. It certainly does kill people. I think many of us probably know someone who is, or have heard of someone who has died of COVID-19. Uh, but again, I think a lot of this is back to how risk averse are you? Uh, higher education, urban life, suburban life tends to make people more risk averse. There's a redneck race of people living in the boondocks who aren't Anabaptists and they're not even very religious yet they're fairly risk tolerant, but these people aren't influencing public policy very much. Are masks beneficial? I think the science is clear that masks spread, slow the spread of COVID-19. They may lessen its severity. I think again here, the larger question is one's risk tolerance and whether you'd prefer the inconvenience in society altering dimensions of masking or not. Now I know that there's a lot of narratives out there that masks are worthless, but I think we must admit that we all live in an age of misinformation and everybody is biased about this. Um, so we have to be careful about, I think it's good to actually to read both sides and try to get a balanced view of what's happening as we assess that. It could be argued that masking is a threat to individual freedoms and that governments shouldn't make mask mandates. Um, but I think that this is, it should be admitted that this is a question of which values are more important, not a denial that masks are somewhat effective. Personally, I find it kind of hard to see the mask mandate as different in principle from a seatbelt law. I don't think that God appointed governments to micromanage these details, but at the same time, I do believe we're to submit to governments. So may God give you wisdom as you think through those things. Will COVID-19 vaccination lead to the mark of the beast? Uh, I think we're so low on time, I'm gonna skip this one. Okay. So the best way to avoid losing religious freedoms related to vaccination. You know, I really believe that if we are opposed to vaccines through um, conspiracy theories or uh, poor scientific understanding that we're going to lose our freedoms currently, at least in, in most states, you can have an objection to vaccination. So I think it's important that we base our vaccination choices on sound science and defensible ethics. I think if there's a large group of people that say we would take this vaccine if it was ethical, but we won't because it's not ethical, that eventually man vaccine manufacturers would step up the plate and make ethical vaccines. Um, but at the same time, the government is getting increasingly frustrated with uh, what they perceive as a threat to public health from people who maybe aren't basing their views on um, very sound science. Again, I'm not trying to offend anybody here. I'm just trying to be honest about how I see it. So I think, I think it's good for us to think about these things. So there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there. There's a lot of misinformation. Most of us aren't very scientifically aware. How are you going to sort through this information? 
Well, my suggestion is that you find someone who you trust who clearly understands the topics being discussed. And you should also know something about that person's worldview. So I received a, um, a video that was forwarded to me in which this woman is speaking. She's very opposed to vaccination. She is um, very opposed to the COVID-19 vaccine and thinks that there's a lot of evil happening through that process. Uh, would you trust this woman? She's a medical doctor. Uh, it looks like she's interested in your flourishing. Well, I'm going to play a couple minutes at the end of her 37 minute video where, where she discusses the COVID-19 vaccine. And I want you to think about whether or not this woman's worldview is something that you could rely on to give you reliable information. Species to an energetic diamond species. We are going to rise under pressure. The more pressure, the more we rise as the new human species, homo luminous. So people watching this now, share this video. They will take it down. We are going to take snippets of this video and cut it up to send to our parents and the people who just do not get it about this COVID. They listen <laughs> to the BBC News or whatever, CNN, and they think, well, if it's on there, then it must be correct. So right. we're going to slice and dice this interview up. We're going to take sections of it. People are going to go over and start following you. And um, I, I, everybody thanking you so much. But can you, do you have any last words for everybody? I, I think also the loneliness thing coming up as well. And I think everyone should know you're all immensely loved. That's what people don't understand, how much they are loved. I'm going to hand that last line over to you. That is really, really true. You would be amazed at how much light is pouring into the planet. Have heart. In fact, your loneliness, your depression, your fear is how you are, in the words of Lori Ladd, alchemizing the darkness that's been controlling us for centuries. Alchemizing means taking lead and turning it into gold. It, you wouldn't be watching this if you weren't an empath healer. You just wouldn't. You'd never be watching someone like me. So what that means is you're like me and your very energy field holds enormous amounts of light. And therefore, just by feeling these emotions, you are uh, dissolving them. But ask for help. I have, I asked for my four guardian angels. I figure we have at least four. And I ask them when I, when I go up against something really, really heavy, I say, okay, angels, lift it out of me, lift it out of me, and then um, put it in violet fire. That's the violet fire of St. Germain. Send it over to the central sun, which is the heart of the creator. And it comes back to me as grace. So you just need some of those practices every day or do the rosary every day. Also very effective. Bring in the divine mother. Anything like that that speaks to you. Yeah, whatever is good for you. Okay, so there you go. Unless you made it to minute 35 of that video, you might not um, see the underlying features of that woman's worldview. But I think we could all ask ourselves, was that very scientific? Um, does that line up with our view of how the world works in reality? And if not, how much of the information that was in the first 35 minutes of the video could you trust? Sanity. So my prayer for myself and for all of us is that we might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that we might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father 
which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Amen. Okay, thank you so much, Brother Philip, for taking a very complicated topic and trying to boil it down and make it make sense for us. I really appreciate that. And I thought about it too, as you were talking um, here that I remember back in April, I think it was that you were emailing the, the Trump, Trump administration, um, requesting them to really consider putting their, their, their funds um, and support into a, a COVID vaccine that would be ethical. So thanks for caring deeply uh, about, this, about this issue. Um, so it's 7.20 um, and I'm gonna open up for about 10 minutes here right shortly uh, for any questions for, for Brother Philip. Um, so we definitely want to have it wrapped down at, at 7.30. But Philip, I have one, one question for you starting out here. Um, so there's been a, a document and a video that's been spread a lot by Dr. Carrie Modet, I think her last name is. And she said, this is her thoughts on the COVID vaccine, that it contains biosensing nanomachines designed to alter human DNA and control people's minds. And I didn't, didn't see that you addressed that in your talk at the end. I'm curious, what are, is, is it possible for a vaccine to be developed that can do that? Uh, read that, that line again, bias. It, it contains biosensing nanomachines designed to alter human DNA and control people's minds. Okay, so science fiction always precedes uh, science reality. There was a time when carrying a phone in your pocket was a subject of science fiction. So I can't say whether that is possible um, but I don't think that technology is there yet. Now, you can alter someone's mind with drugs. That's, there are ways to produce altered states of consciousness and so forth. Uh, but what I'm hearing her describe there is not currently feasible under our, our technology that I'm aware of. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, any questions from those here in attendance uh, for, for Philip? Philip, you must have addressed every question. <laughs> uh, that's good. I'm glad to hear it. Um, uh, we will have a document that, that Philip has created um, uh, with some more information around the COVID vaccine and some of the conspiracy theories, some of his thoughts on that, that we will put uh, with the webpage uh, on, on this talk. But yeah, any, any, any questions from anybody? I don't have a question, but I have a comment, two comments. All right. Number one, thank you. That was really sharp. Uh, <clears throat> for someone who doesn't even play a doctor on television, <laughs> you did a really great job. Uh, number two, the uh, quote from the the uh, that you that you just played was the last clip that you played. I recognized the expression, uh, the violet flame, and so I did a quick search to refresh my memory. This is this is something that comes from a cult leader by the name of Elizabeth Clare Prophet, and. Uh, it's one of the kookiest in the world. Wow. <laughs> I mean, don't take my word for it. Look it up. Uh, I think her, the cult is known as the Church Universal, which sounds fairly innocuous. Uh, but they believe in uh, the, that violet flame thing is a, 
one of the touchstones of that uh, cult. And one of the things that they do is that they repeat mantras. And among the other kooky things that are just, uh, would give you a tip off that this is pretty, pretty weird is, she advises people to repeat those mantras when you're watching TV during the commercials. Wow. I had no idea. That's interesting. Thank you. Elizabeth Clare Prophet. One question I have is, so you, you had mentioned about the, that you will have some more information on your website about the, about the COVID vaccines, is that correct? Um, yeah, I don't have a lot of information that I haven't shared. Um, I have maybe a little fuller document addressing those conspiracy theories. Um, you can go to various websites and read about the COVID vaccine, um, where they just, just, if you're worried about the ethics of it and those questions. Um, as far as um, more information about it's safety. Um, I'm going to say that we're, I'm going to wait and see on that before I try to promote people, push people one way or another on that. I guess one question that I had was that was partly um, that was mentioned was especially about the in the Dr. Carey's video, uh, the nano nanotechnology that they're using in these in these vaccines um, and what what the it's obviously new obviously new technology and that was a big concern that I had uh, what what functions the nano, the nanotechnology um, um, what functions it 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 has in the in the vaccines. Yeah, so what Dr. Carey is doing there is insinuating or stating that the COVID vaccine is not just a vaccine, it's intended for uh, much more diabolical purposes to control you, to change you and so forth. I don't think there's any credible evidence that, that is the case. Um, so when I answered that question uh, about whether that's possible, I don't think it is right now. I'm not saying that in a number of years from now that, that people won't have figured out how to control people's minds in some way to a level they can't today. Um, there, are, there are dozens of vaccines that are being manufactured or in the process of manufacturing. It happens that the first two that are on the market uh, are a new technology. And for those that are concerned about that, it's certainly, but, but want to get a COVID vaccine at some point, you can certainly wait until a traditional vaccine is developed. There are some of those being developed. Um, the, the first two are on the market first because the new technology did allow them to speed up the development process. <clears throat> but uh, although, you know, using uh, mRNA to uh, trigger the immune system to produce an antibody to a spike protein that's unique to the the COVID virus, um, while that is a new thing, in many other respects, the vaccines are fairly traditional. It's, it's an injection that you get that's designed to stimulate your immune system and that's um, 
using your body's natural immunity to fight a, a known virus. That's what we've been doing for many decades. Thank you. Thank you. Uh -huh. Okay, so we have we have time for, for one more question here yet. We're about four minutes to 7.30. And anybody else has, have a question? Philip, I'm wondering if you could address um, this idea, I, I just pulled a quote from Roman Stolzfus uh, from 2021 Anabaptist Identity Conference. And his quote was, there are so many people that still believe, and this is brought home very clearly by the COVID crisis, how much we believe in the old germ theory, which microbiome study has debunked. Now, that wasn't related to vaccines, but I'm wondering if you have any comment on that. I could see that particular way of looking at things lead to a belief that vaccines aren't that helpful. Do you, have you heard of this before or have studied this at all? Um, I'm aware that the microbiome, uh, which is referring to your gut health and a variety of, of um, your gut flora, the bacteria that you have uh, living inside you, it's increasingly thought to be related to your overall health. You know, you, you actually have more more cells inside you that are not you, that are, that are bacteria than your entire body's number of cells. Um, and I think that, that's, that that area of research is bearing fruit and people are learning a lot more about, about the microbiome than they did before. It certainly is, um, influences our health in ways we didn't know and, and discovery is, is underway. I think there's going to be a lot more discoveries made in that area. But as far as the germ theory of disease, I, I'm not entirely sure what is being meant there, except that uh, there are bad bacteria and bad viruses that cause disease. I don't think that's been debunked. Um, the vast majority of bacteria and viruses around us do not cause disease and are important for all kinds of life functions. And we're very thankful for them, whether it's you know making yogurt or cheese or uh, digesting your food and so forth. But there's some bad actors out there that cause sickness. And uh, that's what I know is the germ theory of disease. I, I think that that's not debunked. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Philip. Um, we had a question here come in on the chat and I think I'll just uh, re convey it on to you. Uh, and then this will be our last, our last one here for our talk this morning. And the question is, what is the solution for Christians as a whole in response to the unethical vaccinations or say anything ungodly. For example, uh, the, or the ultra-Orthodox in Israel will boy boycott businesses that are against their laws. Um, you know, for example, businesses that operate in the Sabbath or in time, or in the time of John Newton, I believe, they refused to buy tea in England due to his connection to slavery. Um, so, yeah, so back to the beginning, you know, what is the solution for Christians as a whole in response to the unethical vaccinations? Good question. So. Yeah, that's a good question. We live in a world that has a lot of gray areas, and it's always been that way. It, it's possible that it's more that way than it was in the past. Um, for example, there are people that don't shop at Walmart because they believe that Walmart uh, causes depression and poverty in the world. And Perhaps so. I haven't studied it. Um, you could argue that smartphones are made by perhaps slave labor in other countries. You could boycott smartphones. Um, you know, these kind of things, I think there's general guidelines that we can 
we can go by. So, you know, in our family, we're boycotting vaccines that are grown in fetal tissue because we think it can make a difference in the long term. We think that vaccine companies eventually will produce vaccines ethically if enough people speak up and that in some way that will um, work against the tragedy of abortion and some of the justifications that are that are made of abortion. Uh, for example, Stanley Plotkin there in the video that I showed you basically um, had no concerns with his use of 76 fetuses in developing the rubella vaccine because he considers that the good that was done far outweighs the evil that he did. Now he's an atheist, so um, he's inherently going to have an end justifies the means kind of kind of worldview. Um, so at a personal level, we are aware that that in refusing some vaccines, we are taking on some risk, although we live in America where, for example, there's not measles commonly, so it's not a very large risk. Uh, we've, we've chosen to, to take that risk for ourselves and our children um, and everybody, but I, I can't extrapolate that to every issue of shopping at Walmart and uh, using a smartphone for everybody, but I respect those that have convictions in areas that I don't. Sure. Okay, thank you, Philip. Uh, thank you for those, res those responses. Thank you for the talk this morning. Uh, we could go on for a long time here, I'm sure. We had a question come in about the whole uh, restriction to those who, or the possible restrictions to those who don't have the COVID-19 vaccination and flying, et cetera. Uh, you talk a little bit about that in that document that you wrote up. Um, so I'll just, um, just, my response to that, to the person who asked, is you can check out our website here later on this morning and there'll be that document on there that Philip attempts to talk about some of these things a little bit more in depth. Um, so again, have it on this morning, hopefully soon. Yeah, it'll be up on our website. So yeah, so again, thanks Philip. And Philip, would you just lead us in prayer here as we close? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the precious name of Jesus. Thank you that he is coming soon to make all things right, to make all things new, to restore this fallen creation. Thank you, Lord, for the, the mandate we've been given to uh, spread your kingdom in physical and spiritual ways. While we're here, help us to be faithful in doing that. Father, my, my prayer for myself and for each of us is that we could cut through the fog and through the opinions and through the, through the um, false narratives of every kind that are around us so that we could bring glory to Jesus, honor his name. Help us to do that in our lives today, Lord, and remember that we are here to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, thank you everyone for joining us. Um, may God bless your day. Uh, Lord willing, next Saturday morning. Brian Martin, who is the director at the Allegheny Boys Camp, will be on uh, talking on the subject of life lessons from a zillion canutrips. So uh, a little different topic than this morning, but uh, nonetheless, I'm sure it's going to be very interesting. So God bless each one of you today, and we will uh, talk later. Goodbye. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.